Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here. Welcome to episode five of A Thousand Tiny Steps. And as usual, before I get started on what I'm going to talk about, I have some little things that are in my head that I'll start with. So this is episode five. As I've mentioned before, before I started the idea of doing a podcast, I had a million reasons why I couldn't do it, mostly the technical things and the organizational. I hired this amazing podcast editor who laid everything out. And one of the things that he had me do was really plan out my first season of podcasts. So season one is about Jack. And, and we planned it out meticulously and I'd, I'd send him my ideas and he'd, he'd make suggestions. And so it was all planned out really well. And so I sat down for episode four and started talking and I just kept talking and talking and got all the way through three episodes worth of information. <laughs> my initial plan had been to do IVF round one, it not working, IVF round two, sort of as an episode, and then finding out I'm pregnant and the pregnancy as an episode, and then preeclampsia and the birth of Jack all is three different episodes. And so we went back and forth on whether I should re-record or just release the the 55 minute, tell the whole story at once episode. And you know, part of of what I want out of this podcast is that it be authentic. So if you're looking at me and my shirt's all wet here, it's because my hair's wet and it's a muggy day. And I didn't change because why, why make another shirt dirty when it's just wet because of my hair? The authenticity of me is that sometimes I get ahead of myself. Sometimes I get going like a bull in a china shop, talk, 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 talk. My, my ability to tell a story is a blessing and a curse. So what I'm going to do on this podcast is sort of rehab a little, recap a little bit, all of those things. My thought process in the, in the finding out it didn't work and finding out it did work and, and really talk about what it was like being pregnant at 57, a bit more than just the fun, you know, the, the standout stories. And I'm also going to talk a little bit about preeclampsia and how frustrating that was for me. (laughs) And then finish up with a much more detailed explanation of the hospital. That's what you can look forward to this time. And I promise I won't talk an hour. (laughs) The biggest thing I think to start with in terms of recapping and giving you a little more information about what it was like is finding out that I was pregnant. As I've said before, it wasn't about the baby for me, which makes little sense to most people when they think of IVF and trying to get pregnant. It's all about the baby. And of course, once the baby's here, it is all about the baby. Jack dictates it all. But at the time, I really was very, very open to the fact that many things were happening to me in the process of creating Jack that were profound and really had nothing to do with with Jack, but the process of creating him, finding brain tumors, being in a physical state that we were resting and saw a post about the hungers, meeting the hungers, kidneys, kidneys, kidney transplant, the first round not working and having us think about what do we do next? And, and I remember the biggest thing I remember standing in the swimming pool that day in September of 2019 and knowing that I was not pregnant was, well, maybe I wasn't supposed to be like, I really, really had this open mind about it. And when we went down to see Dr. Cardoni, I very much wanted to try again, but if he had said no, I mean, and I can't predict it, but I, I was prepared for him to say no. And I was prepared to have my pregnancy journey 
be about finding brain tumors and, and, and kidneys. And maybe that's what it was about. So when Dr. Cardoni agreed to try again, of course, I had renewed enthusiasm. I tried very hard to continue my role as a passenger on a train over which I really had little control. The universe was taking me someplace with this baby journey, and my job was just to manage it the best that I could. And I would say, you know, in future seasons of the podcast, when I get into all the other things that are going on in my life at the same time, I can talk a bit more in depth about me and what was going on inside of my head, but in regards to a lot of things. But in terms of making this baby, the journey continued, and we went into IVF round two. I have to say, really, for me, the same way I felt in round one. I was open to whatever happens, happens. And that's when I shared about Dr. Cardoni asking me at the transfer, did I think it would work? And I said, if it's supposed to, it will work. Well, clearly it was supposed to because we have a check. That experience, that round of IVF and, and finding out that, yes, I am pregnant was completely different. There was no, you know, there was no sort of thought process. I will say once I was pregnant, I did not employ the same process of whatever will happen will happen. If this baby is meant to be born, then the pregnancy will go nine months. If it isn't, it won't. Once you're pregnant and, and any women out there that have been pregnant, you know, and wanted to be pregnant, know that once you know there's a life inside of you, all you want is for the life to survive. So that, that piece of detachment went away the moment I really knew I was pregnant. You know, before, long before anyone can tell, long before you can tell looking in a mirror, the reality that you're walking around with another life inside of you is overwhelming and astounding and profound. And, and not one that I've ever taken lightly. And so those first few weeks, you know, of 2020, August and September, following the advice of Dr. Shottery is to live my life, just live my life, continue doing what I'm doing, work, work out, go out, have fun. You know, of course my diet changed and, and I paid much more attention to what I was putting into my body, but I really did try to just continue living life and not think about it. I didn't gain a lot of weight in the beginning. I was working out my workouts. My fitness had turned a corner shortly before the transfer. And I was starting to feel like the barb I was long before Molly died when I was really doing well at CrossFit. And I talked about the irony a little bit, how I'm finally thin and fit <laughs> and now I'm going to grow a baby. But actually, what better way to start this process at my age than being thin and fit? As the fall went along and this pregnancy journey unfolded, life became much more duplicitous for me. There was pregnant barb for the first two months, really just Kenny and myself, my sister-in-law, Kathy, my author, Virginia and one bow parent, <laughs> Catherine Parker, uh, this little group of people knew. And so I had good external support, people checking in on me. How are you feeling? What's going on? That sort of thing. But it was this double life because I was just regular Barb in my day-to-day -day activities. And that includes my family, my closest friends, my work environment, people I was spending time with. I didn't mention any of this because it really was my journey. And this was the first time that I knew that should things go wrong and the pregnancy not work, that that would be another loss for me to deal with. And that's a pretty big weight on my shoulders and was a bit of a foreshadowing for, for Gracie and her concerns when she found out. So I finished the first trimester, you know, still nobody, nobody knows. And I get into trimester two and now we're heading into month four, you know, four and five, which is like 16 to 25, 26 weeks. And now my body is absolutely changing. The weight is starting to come on. I'm not feeling him quite yet move around. I don't even know it's a him yet. And, and the, this is the time of the pregnancy that began to get intense. I remember the first ultrasound and that was only like at 14 or 15 weeks. And there he is. There's this little baby. There's this little head, little nose, heartbeat. All of those things make it real. 
But when I say real, <laughs> it's still speculation. You can't actually see them. You see something on a TV screen that's allegedly inside your tummy. But you leave those appointments or I left those appointments always with another bite of, of the profound pie in my mouth because, because it was becoming more and more real. I was actually doing this. I was my age and I was growing a baby. So I spent a lot of time at the clinic, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center Clinic in Concord. And, you know, with all the COVID protocol, the check-ins, you have to get your temperature done. They ask you the questions and they direct you which way to go to go stand in line at a particular window. And so it was the same two or three people for the whole, really not only ended up being about seven months or six months for me because I didn't go for a few weeks and then Jack came a month early, but these people saw me all the time. And, and I was always going to OBGYN. And it really wasn't until about two weeks before Jack was born that some of them even knew I was pregnant. What? You're pregnant? Because I really, I just didn't get huge. It, and it depended on what I wore as well. But trimester two really became about me actively living as a pregnant person. Gracie knew now, once we got beyond 22 weeks and in the, in the heart testing and everything, I started to tell more people. I told people in my family. I remember I sent a text message to my mother. She had been a bit concerned the first time around when I told her after the brain surgery, the whole reason I found the tumors was this. And she was, well, you know, and she gave up, gave a lot of reasons why this was a terrible idea. None of which really had anything to do with my age. <laughs> At any rate, I sent her a text message and just want you to know. And her response was, she was thrilled. She just came over and we talked about it. And she's so excited. My dad was excited. My siblings, all completely excited. I remember, well, Kathy and Rick knew. My brother, Jonathan, I called him and actually the family was all up in his house and we couldn't go. And so I said, Jonathan, I have news. And so I tell him and he immediately yells it out. And of course, everyone there already knew. Kathy and Rick knew, my parents knew. <laughs> Jonathan's son is Jonah. He's my nephew. He's 12. And so he finally has a boy cousin. So there was some there was some excitement around that as well. I mean, that was an exciting time. My favorite, favorite things, though, in terms of telling people were my school board member folks and people in the district, administrators and such, because I work with these people and they saw me all the time. And, you know, my ever expanding belly, which I which I said before, people can attribute that to menopause and women gain weight in their tummies. So, you know, people might have just thought, oh, gee, she's gaining weight again. But, you know, the hey, I have something to tell you. I'm 24 weeks pregnant with a baby boy and the deadpan like no, no expression whatsoever, no reply. They have to sit for a minute and process this information. One of my favorite responses is somebody saying, is this good news? <laughs> like, oh no, here I am. You know, and at my age, a spontaneous pregnancy, I think would be almost impossible. I'm sure the Guinness Book of World Records would clarify that. But, but you know, no, yes, I'm happy. It took me a long time to make it happen. And a lot, lots and lots of steps in the process, you know, all through the holidays and then into the winter, it was life as usual for me. Life carried on. I, I visited the same people. I went to the gym. I did work. I putzed around the house. Life was essentially unchanged, except that I was eating better and not drinking. Two things, which of course made everything else feel better. The gym and working out was exciting because I just felt so good. And I have to say, you know, not to push CrossFit on anyone, the type of exercising that CrossFit is exists in many different kinds of gym, but when I look back to all the running I did with Gracie and Molly, I definitely was fit, but the running itself was very, very pounding for me, it hurt my hips, it hurt my knees, and I couldn't run throughout my pregnancy very easily at all. I really stopped at about six months. And with CrossFit, the mobility and the strength and the, and the muscular endurance and the variety of movements and the weightlifting, I'll, I'll tell you right now, we, we spend our lives lifting weights. You, you can't go through a day without picking things up and putting them down. All of this 
just kept me so physically centered. I ate when I was hungry. I stopped when I was full. I gained weight, but not an out of, you know, a ridiculous amount of weight. It really was a good, it was a good process. I, I have told people again and again that I felt better in this pregnancy than any other pregnancy. I just felt good. I had no morning sickness and no real strong cravings. I didn't have those in my other pregnancies either. My pregnancy with Gracie, I craved dairy products. I remember once stopping at a gas station, getting a thing of milk, and just guzzling it down. I craved dairy with her. Molly, not so much. With Molly and Gracie, I couldn't eat a lot of meat. It just made me feel nauseous. In this pregnancy, that was pretty much the same. I, I would make myself eat one or two bites, I guess, if I thought I needed the protein. But but I really, I'd get it up to me and it smelled like a wet dog and nobody wants to take a bite of that. So that was a consistency for me. I slept fine. I mean, sleeping fine is qualified for me now because after losing Molly, I don't, I don't sleep fine. So I had lots and lots of sleepless nights, but this wasn't unusual for me. And then when Jack started moving around this, then it just became that next step of excitement where, oh my gosh, I have a baby in here and he's moving around. And that's, you know, that's called quickening back in the day. You still, you feel little things and you wonder what that was. I, I saw Jack move sometimes before I felt it. Like I would be watching TV at night, lying on my back on the bed. And, and I, there's my tummy and the glow of the TV. And then you see like a little foot go by or an elbow or something. It was wonderful. And those, those remain my favorite moments. And when they happened. So again, remember, I really never thought I would have another child and Molly was 18 years ago. So Reliving these things was wonderful and, and emotional all at the same time. It was exciting like it would be for any new mother. And then it was like heart-wrenching because, you know, all the reasons coming into why I'm even experiencing it in the first place. I was able to maintain a really good handle on it emotionally, I feel, until the preeclampsia diagnosis. And that was the third week in March. Dr. Chaudhary was going away. We had planned on an early April delivery. He really wanted to be around. You know, his April was clear for me <laughs> and Jack had other ideas or my body had other ideas. Preeclampsia is far more common than people realize. And it's the number one reason I think that women have induced labors and go into labor early. For whatever reason, the body starts to respond in a negative way to pregnancy. So protein in the urine, high blood pressure, sudden exaggerated swelling and a lowering of the platelets in the blood. These are all signs of preeclampsia. I felt fine. I, I noticed my legs getting fat, like my knees getting really, really, I look looking at them like, wow, that's a level of swelling I have never had. I didn't feel badly from the high blood pressure. I didn't feel uncomfortable. I didn't have any symptoms along with that would come from the symptoms. So it was, so I had a hard time with this. I went to the, you know, I had the protein in my urine and the high blood pressure at my appointment. I went across the street to the hospital and had blood drawn. And the the nurse and the doctor there were really, and Dr. Shottery was still there. He came over trying to say, look, preeclampsia, this is not what we wanted, but you, you can't really reverse it. Once it's here, it's here. And it indicates that, that the baby should come out. Nothing is wrong with the baby during preeclampsia. The baby's fine, but they, but it often can have something to do with the placenta. They don't really know, quite honestly, there isn't like one specific cause. And it's nothing that a woman does. Even though all of these symptoms are preventable, they wouldn't come if it wasn't related to preeclampsia. So my blood pressure continued to climb and they were actually a bit amazed that I didn't have any symptoms. The highest it got was 197 over 105, which I think is pretty high, but I felt fine. I didn't feel out of breath or dizzy or like I had a vice in my head. I, I felt completely fine. Low platelets were improved. I had some steroid injections that would help Jack's lungs because he's early. 
but it also helped me raise up my platelet count so that they weren't, that wasn't so low. That's in your red blood cells. You have to have a, a certain ratio of each to have healthy blood that will stop bleeding when it hits air and all that kind of stuff. And platelets play a key role in that. So when I went back on Friday and Dr. Chaudhary's away now on his little family vacation and I'm at the hospital having my appointment that he made me have, <laughs> the doctor was much more concerned, really, really didn't want to let me leave. And I was just angry. The machine is wrong. This isn't wrong. I don't want to have a baby now. I want to wait until Monday. I want Dr. Chaudhary to deliver the baby. I really, really was rigid about it. And she left me for a bit. She had something she had to do and I was lying there by myself. And it was all of a sudden, you know, I'm on a stretcher. I'm in the hospital. And keep in mind too, uh, my experiences in the family place are wonderful. I had my babies there. The two babies that lived the longest so far, I had at the family center, family place in Concord at Concord Hospital. And so that hospital is also the place that my daughter died. And you can't extricate those two things. It doesn't matter. It's one and the same, the good and the bad wound woven together, which is, as I've said many times, the story of my life. So I'm lying on the stretcher there, really, really thinking about everything. And I realize, all right, Barbara, you have to stop. When did you decide you could drive the train? And that, and I have a recurring dream about a train, which I'll talk about another time, but it's a strong analogy for me because sometimes I feel like our lives are a train ride. And yeah, you can get off a train and get on another one, but sometimes the ride will be no different because you're on the train you're supposed to be on. What you can do is make sure your cabin is clean and that you're eating good food and, and that you have a good relationship with the conductor. So I realized that what I was doing was, you know, trying to control something that wasn't in my control. I completely let go of my detached, uh, this is happening for a reason, it will unfold. And I was trying to make it about me. The doctor came back and I said, look, I have the car. I, have, I haven't packed anything. Let me go home and get my stuff. I'll be right. I'll come back. So I was gone for almost two hours. And as I said, I packed in all sorts of things. I had taken no real pregnancy pictures, you know, pretty pictures in the field with a long dress. I had all those plans and never, never got the chance to do it. So my, my friend, Erin came over, Erin Howard, and she is a wonderful photographer. And she took some last minute pictures for me in the yard. We have this little kettlebell and, you know, me and my ironborn sweatshirt, my t-shirt, you know, so my CrossFit shirt. So I should get some pictures done. I called Tony Chanella. I knew that press would be a big issue. And Tony and I grew up together and he works at a website called Patch. And it's a wonderful news website online. And so I wanted him to break the story, which he did. His, his article was first. We published it before I even came home from the hospital. So he came up, took a couple of pictures and asked me some questions. And we set up a time to talk after Jack's arrived. I, I packed a bag, you know, made arrangements for Gracie, you know, tried to take care of as many things as I could. And then I went to the hospital by myself while Kenny dropped me off. And that in and of itself is also a big piece of this story. Every caretaker I had, nurse, doctor, LNA was female. It was like this merry band of women, <laughs> a bevy of beautiful maidens, as Gilbert and Sullivan would say. That process of getting me in, getting the IVs in, everyone meeting me and talking to me, being very, very clear that they understood it might be difficult for me to be at the hospital where Molly died. You know, really, really, my care was phenomenal and thorough. And so I met several doctors. There's, of course, the, the pediatrician that deals with the baby once the baby comes. And there's the OBGYNs that deal with the mother delivering the baby. And, and they all have to sort of marry one another and dance together to make this work in a way that's comfortable for me, the woman having the baby. But I had a wonderful group of nurses and doctors that were funny. We could joke around. Humor for me. If you lose your laughter, you lose your footing. That's a line out of Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it's one of my very favorite books. And you have to be able to laugh. Once you can't laugh at life anymore, for me, it's un, it's unmanageable. Even through all of Molly's death and all the trauma and tragedy around those, those weeks, I laughed every day. There was, there's always something to laugh about. There has to be. My night there was just me and my, and my wonderful caretaker. They had to strip my membranes, which is a painfully necessary procedure, I guess. 
but basically they got my cervix into thinking it was time to have the baby, which then tells the uterus it's time to have the baby. I was incredibly lucky. One of my concerns was that I would have this long drawn out labor because my body wouldn't want to be in labor because it wasn't supposed to be yet. I have a very, very, very healthy body, but it's a very sensitive one. I react quickly in negative and positive ways. So when I'm trying to get back into shape, the results are almost immediate. When I get out of shape, that happens quickly. I respond to medications and I heal very, very quickly. I've had several pretty major orthopedic surgeries in my life. And one would never know watching me walk around that I'd had all these issues. So I shouldn't have been surprised that that childbirth and the labor would be the same. I, I went to sleep with this IV full of magnesium for my high blood pressure, which was supposed to make me feel terrible, which wasn't so bad for me. I was given medicine, you know, up in, up into my uterus, uh, cervix rather, to help it face and thin and open. And that was that. And, and the Pitocin would start later. Pitocin is a muscle contractor. So when, when you get Pitocin given, it causes your uterus to contract. So when I woke up in the morning, as I said, I had, you know, I woke up a couple of times in the night. I didn't recall, you know, the Pitocin or any of those things. I just I was checked on temperature, all that vitals. So when I woke up and nobody was around and, and I didn't feel anything in my stomach, I just thought, okay, I haven't gone into labor yet, or maybe I'm not, maybe they were going to wait because it was my assumption I would go into labor in the night. And my thoughts were that that would keep me awake because everything keeps me awake. <laughs> so, so when the, when the doctor came in and said, you know, how are you feeling? And, and I was just sort of shocked that I was actually in labor. I, you know, I had to look at the monitor. The whole morning was calling Kenny and altering the plans. Oh, it should be fine. Just get here by mid-afternoon you know, oh, maybe you should get here for lunch. Okay. Maybe you should arrange for a ride for Gracie and come up now. So they were seeing things that I guess I wasn't, I was now starting to feel the contractions. So I would say I probably had strong and painful contractions for about two hours max. I think that's it from, I really started to tell they were contractions until I could, I, until they were horrifyingly painful. So Kenny came up in the middle of all this. He got, he arrived, I think at about 11, perhaps 11 to 15. And I had my water broken at that time. So Breaking the water is another signal that contractions need to start. And oftentimes it's a kickstart for women who are being induced. They get, they get to a certain point and they break the water. And that's a balance because the amniotic fluid is important for the baby. You don't want to break it too soon if it looks like it could be a long drawn out labor that could be difficult for the baby. Shortly after my water was broken and my contractions were hard, I thought, you know what, I, I do not need to be a hero. I'm going to have an epidural. And I asked for one and they said, are you sure? And I, I kept wanting to clarify how long am I going to feel this way? Because if I'm going to have these contractions for six hours, then I'll have an epidural. I'm, I'm old. I've, I deserve it. But if I'm going to have a baby in 10 minutes, then no, that's not a question anyone can truly answer. So the, the anesthesiology team came in and I had the epidural, a nice big needle in the back. What I noticed the most was that it did nothing. Uh, all I felt was the needle. I, I didn't felt any, felt no sense of relief. The next contraction arrived just as painful and horrifyingly hot as the one prior. And I was a bit confused. And, you know, and the, everyone was sort of exchanging glances. And as I looked back on it, I think I knew that I was a lot closer to having Jack than I thought. So she had me lie back and, and the doctor examined me to see if in fact, you know, maybe Jack was ready. And the first time they did this, she said, well, his head is down, it's in the area, but it wasn't like he was way, way down. And I remember walking around for a bit and I'm a, I'm a give birth naked kind of person. I can't stand the feeling of clothing on me. It's like, ah. It's just irritating. So I had the thing around my tummy with the, you know, the cloth around my stomach with the monitors to listen to Jack's heart. And I'm, you know, I have, you know, I leaned over the bed. I, I'm also, I also can't lie down in labor. I really need to move around. I had none of this 
sensation that I should push. I was very, very detached from this labor. I mean, the contractions were painful now, but I think because there hadn't been five, six, seven hours of this slowly progressing labor that I was aware of the whole time, that I didn't really have a sense of it. You know, I woke up, I didn't really know I was in labor until nine o'clock and now it's, you know, 11.15, 11.30. We had the epidural done and, and I got nothing. So I laid down, laid back down and had another exam. And she said, you know, his head's right here. Why don't you give a push and see if we can get it further down? So I gave a bit of a half-hearted push. And again, I was slipping out of my, you know, oh, let, let it happen and trying to control it. And I, I just didn't, I didn't want to push. And I think I even said, I don't really want to push right now. Because I didn't have that feeling that I had so clearly with Gracie. I did a little half-hearted push. And she said, oh, his head's right there. His head's right there. I can feel it. So, you know, what you, you push with a contraction. You don't just randomly push. When the, when the next contraction comes, while you're contracting, you push along with it. So she said, all right, here we go. Get ready. So I pushed and I pushed really hard and then I can feel it. So that's another pretty amazing thing. Everyone assumes the baby coming out is the painful part. No, there are no nerve endings in, in the walls of the vagina. If there were, babies would never come out. <laughs> there are plenty of nerve endings on the surface, the skin around the vagina and, and all, but the, the baby in the vagina just feels like immense relief and a bit of pressure. So I could feel him coming. I could feel the head. And, and so suddenly the head is out. Like, oh my gosh, we have the head. So I didn't stop pushing. I, I mean, I suppose I could have, but I was just in the middle of a really good push. So I just kept pushing and his whole little body came out. So he just slithered out in one big push and everybody was shocked. I mean, everybody, all sorts of fluid comes out, which is, you know, kind of a disgusting detail, but one that you should know. And Jack Jack came right up onto my chest. And it's funny. She apologized to me. Oh, I hope that's okay. I don't know what mother wouldn't want her baby on her chest right away. And if there is some, I apologize. I'm not being judgmental, but it was the most amazing. That's, that's when, as they say, shit gets real. <laughs> and here he was, this teeny little, beautiful, perfect human being, this perfect little baby. He put his little hands on my chest and looked up and he held that little head up for probably a half a second. His little eyes open, looked right at me, went back down. That was pretty profound. Kenny saw it and a couple of the nurses and everyone, we all just, what? little baby puts his head up. I think he just wanted me to know he was here. I also feel very strongly that Molly wanted me to know she was there and that, that she was on it. I also spoke about Gracie and Allison, Rachel Hunger's little sister, doing their duo. And they, they were dancing at about the time Jack was born, almost identical time, same 15 to 20 minute time frame. Several people noticed that their, their dance was just something was different about it. There was an energy to it and a light and a connection that, that several people text messaged me and said, boy, oh boy, you should have seen today. And I just firmly believe that Rachel and Molly were, were taking care of Allie and Gracie, which eases my mind. You know, as bad as it is to have your child in heaven, the connection I have now to the universe other than just planet earth is profound. And I get such support and relief at times from my spiritual team and from, and from whatever the other side is. It's such a gift in this horrifying reality. For the rest of the afternoon, it's really just making sure Jack is okay. They have to weigh him and do all the different things they do. So he's with me, then he's away from me, then he's with me, then he's away from me. He's new. He was 36 weeks, so his little throat isn't quite ready to nurse and to swallow. So he makes these gurgly sounds still. It takes a long time. There's a name for it, which I don't remember. And so that was a bit of a concern in the beginning. They were also not sure that my breast milk would come. I, and I couldn't imagine why it wouldn't because I the baby and if my body can grow the baby it can make the milk we got a breast pump and started pumping and sure enough i had milk and i had a really bizarre bizarre thing so breast milk colostrum is sometimes yellow breast milk itself is white but colostrum is what comes first and so i had healthy colostrum and then out of my on my right side i had like chocolate milk and i'm like oh my god it's brown and it was a bit of a, it was kind of gross i have to be honest but 
it took about two days and then, and then it regained its normal color. So maybe rusty pipes, I don't know. And there was nothing wrong with it. And Jack drank it just fine. But in the hospital, the, the balance between nursing him and putting a bottle in his mouth was about 50-50. It's a, it's a bigger concern to the hospital staff that he eat and gain weight or maintain weight than it is whether it's breast milk or formula. And I'll, I'll devote a podcast to that debate at a later time. But it, at that time, I was able to have donated breast milk. The hospital has a, a milk bank. It was probably one third of each, one third donated milk, one third formula, one third me. And he seemed okay. He was, he was drinking and sleeping. And whereas I remember Molly and Gracie's hospital stays is a bit chaotic because so many people were there coming to visit watching the birth, all of this. With COVID, there were no visitors. It was just Kenny and myself. And for a couple of days, he didn't leave thinking if he left, he couldn't come back. So it was just quiet. Watch TV, take naps, take turns holding the baby, take a shower, make sure I'm peeing enough. All the, all sort of the tedious things that go along after childbirth. Because he was so little and because he didn't spend three hours in my vagina, I didn't have a lot of physical, you know, physical issues down there. Gracie and Molly both battered me and it was weeks and weeks before you know I could I felt comfortable you know they have these wonderful maxi pads that are actually ice they're ice packs so you crack them open and put them in your pants it's the best thing ever <laughs> but I didn't I didn't really need any of that I saw a little bit but not much I had one little sort of tear and I think it's because he just came out all at once so there was no sort of easing easing you know the vagina open I just shot that baby right out but it was it was like nothing it was not at all like it had been with Gracie and Molly. So that was sort of a relief. Because Jack was little, he he automatically could stay an extra day. And because I had had three brain tumors in my head and lost a child to a brain tumor, and because of my age, it was decided I could stay another day as well. The deciding factor of this was Monday morning, which is the day that I could have gone home. I woke up with a massive migraine, flickery vision, all of it. And I haven't had a migraine in a long time. So I was had a bit of concern. So they arranged an MRI for me. So during this process, my friend Tony, patch editor, called and asked, you know, let's do our interview now. So we did a little phone interview and we talked on the phone. He took notes and such. I had Kenny take a picture of me holding, holding Jack Jack and put like a normal shirt on. The article was released Monday night. I was going for my MRI, which happened Monday evening. And, you know, they have people wheel you down. I was waiting, you know, they parked my chair and a group of employees were chatting and they, and one of them said, oh, I read on patch that a 57 year old lady had a baby here. <laughs> and that was me. So that was a little bit of foreshadowing for me on how quickly the story might spread. I did not have a handle on, on how quickly it would or how wide it would go at all at that time. But so I just sort of said, well, that's me. I'm the one. And they were so excited and, you know, then worried that they, I'd heard them talking about me. And I said, don't worry about it. It's fine. So I had to have an MRI, just two things to make sure, you know, I had had that alarmingly high blood pressure. And then I have had three brain tumors removed from my head. I've lost a child to a brain tumor. So, so it was in everyone's best interest to make sure the inside of my head was okay, at least physically. And so I had an MRI and it was, everything was fine. So on Tuesday, took about until about mid-afternoon, Jack and I could finally come home. That was wonderful because at home was my mother. So we get home and she come, she came and held Jack so little. And then the biggest thing for me, I'll probably sort of end here on this note because Gracie is such a big piece of it. But you know, I had talked about Gracie being not so happy about this news. And the pregnancy was hard for her and the delivery was hard for her and Kenny having to leave and her being alone. So many strong triggers here of abandonment and, and, and the fear of all of us dying. I told you when I got diagnosed with those brain tumors, her, her Facebook post about, you know, my sister's dead. My second mother doesn't talk to us anymore. 
my dad needs a kidney. Now my mother has brain tumors. Like I think, I think so much of her formative years as an adolescent were spent worrying about being the only one left alive in her family. You know, I think of the Kennedys and, you know, JFK Jr. and is gone and mom and dad are gone and poor, poor Carolyn is the last one alive, Caroline Kennedy. You know, I think sometimes that she thought that way. I was very, very, very excited and concerned about her coming home. So I was in the bed. I was in the big bed at the time because it was close to the bathroom and I thought that might be a good place to be. And so I'm sitting up there in the bed and I'm holding this teeny little newborn baby and just looking at him. And I hear her come in and I hear her come up the stairs and then it stops and it's silence. And, and she peeks around the door and I just hold him up, little teeny Jack. And the rest is history. They fell in love with each other in that minute. She, she snarfed him up and she sat down and she looked at him and she just checked him out and held him and smelled him. And, and that was it. A true love affair was born. And I will say right now, six months in, because Jack is now six months old. His favorite person in all, of all the people is Gracie. The only reason he wants me more ever is because he's hungry. <laughs> and maybe there isn't a bottle around. That's some more details around the actual making of Jack, my experience at the hospital, coming home, you know, all of it, letting the press know, and Gracie's reaction. Those are the those are the really important pieces to me that I wanted you as the listener to really have a better handle on than my than my long version <laughs> of everything all at once in my in episode four. So I appreciate your patience and re-listening. Next time I'll get into much more of the press and, and what that journey's been like and all the things that even led up to me having this podcast. So I'll end as I always do with make sure you take good care of yourself today. I went to CrossFit, which is how I love to start my day. I'm wonderful people at my gym. And I actually do, I do that mom strong class. So that's a way that I really take care of myself. I drive an hour to get to it. There's a tremendous group of mothers who are committed to their own fitness and wellness and committed to teaching their children that moms work out, <laughs> that this is what we do and that it's okay to feel comfortable in the gym. It's such, it's such a profound experience for me and so different. Even, you know, when you think of 20 years ago and, you know, when, you, when you're born like me in 1963, 20 years ago is still now. It's still like current time in my head. It's not, it doesn't feel that long ago, but the support around the, in the fitness community around men and women, you know, the only difference is who wears a sports brand who doesn't sometimes and the rest of it is that that our differences just make us unique not better or worse or more worthy of attention and my my fitness community in both the gyms that I go to is phenomenal and so supportive of motherhood and the female body and the body in general and babies so that's what I do and I, I might get redundant I, I I go to CrossFit one other thing I've started doing is I started taking ballet and tap again long before Molly died I had tap danced five or six years and I'd gotten busy and had stopped right around the time she died and listening to music has been very tough for me so listening to music in a dance studio and having to respond to it has been challenging both I've had one ballet class and one tap class but it's where I need to be incorporating music and rhythm and movement in a place that's special to me can only be helpful. So that's another thing I'm doing for myself, <laughs> taking ballet and tap at age 58. Just why not? Anyway, thank you for listening and have a great day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.